an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you all. It's a wonderful privilege for me to be with you here this morning to, uh, to talk a little bit about my converso, my conversion or my turning around. And uh, let's begin by um, calling on the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, send down your spirit now, we pray, upon us um, that our hearts may be inflamed with love to you and that the stories that we share now, Lord, may serve to uh, strengthen the cords of love that we have with your holy Catholic Church. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. So Holy Spirit, amen. My dad was a Navy chaplain for 26 years. And one of the unusual things about military worship is that most of the liturgical furnishings and vestments and articles are double-sided. And the reason for this is in many military bases, there's just one chapel and it needs to be used for both Protestant and Catholic worship. So the military, always being very efficiency-minded, develops vestments and liturgical claws and decorations that are Protestant on one side and have Catholic iconography on the other. So I can remember very clearly being uh, a young boy and, and uh, being in the military chapel and having just heard my dad preach and the Protestant worship was over and now the Catholics were filing in for mass in the same building and the RP, the short for religious program specialist, or the sailor trained to do this kind of thing, the RP would come out and he would start to strike the set and set up for mass. And so I watch, he'd go to the ambo, and there'd be a rather plain cloth on the ambo. He'd flip that around. There'd be some kind of icon okay, on there. He'd go to the altar, take the long altar cloth, flip it over, something much more elaborate. So he'd do this all around, you know, setting up. Then finally, he went to the altar, and he grasped this plain gold cross that just said IHS in the middle, and flipped it around. And to my shock and horror, there was a crucifix on the back. So the entire time I was in the Protestant worship, listening to my dad preach Calvinism, there was a crucifix, a corpus, on the back of this plain cross at the center of our worship. And what I'm here to tell you about today is God grasping me and flipping me around to reveal a Catholicism that in a sense was always there, but I didn't know it until it was revealed. Okay, as I mentioned, my dad was a Navy chaplain for 26 years. He, he was preaching when I was born. In fact, I was born on a Sunday January 17th, 1971, my dad dropped my mom off at the hospital, went to preach, came back, and there I was. <laughs> I don't recommend that for your marriage. 
But nonetheless, it was some kind of omen I imagined of my future. Uh, I was the last of five siblings. I have three brothers and a sister. They're all in a clump. They're all within about five years of each other. And then there's a six-year gap, and then me. There's an explanation for that. Uh, after the birth of my sister, my dad was pressured by the uh, military hospital to ensure that there were no future children. So he underwent an operation for that. Without my mom's consent or knowledge until afterwards. Now my mom is very open to life and she never felt that that was a right thing to do because in her reading of the Bible <clears throat> children are an unmitigated blessing. Couldn't find anywhere in the Bible where children were a curse. So after five years she finally persuaded my dad to undergo another operation and then I was born. <clears throat> and the reason I say that is because as I was looking over my story this morning, I realized that there's a thread going through my experiences that led to coming into the church, and that thread is openness to life. <sighs> and that thread has a... <clears throat> a lot to do with my mother and a series of, of, a series of fiats that my mother made that led to an effect in my life. And that first fiat, that first let it be, was that I'm open to more children after four, even though it was around the early 70s when zero population growth was in full swing, as you may recall, and we were heading into Roe v. Wade and it was extremely unpopular. And even with four kids, she would get dirty looks going to the supermarket that she was abusing the planet okay, and taking up too much resources. And in that hostile environment, she said, I, I want more gifts from God. Okay, that will be a theme. Well, I grew up in a devout home. Uh, we, being a military family, we moved all over on both coasts, Hawaii, New Jersey, Connecticut. Uh, California, um, back to Hawaii, some time in Virginia, Quantico Marine Corps uh, base in, uh, in Virginia. Um, uh, being Protestants, um, you know, I prayed, the, I prayed the sinner's prayer at age eight. It's a wonderful thing. Some of you may know that. Some of you have had a background Protestant, you know, praying to receive Jesus into your heart. I did that myself. It was a beautiful, like, it was a, what we would call a spiritual communion. And it was a dramatic moment in my life at age eight. At age 12, my mom started, started me reading the Bible uh, through each year on a plan called the Daily Walk. It's a ministry that's still out there. Um, they, send a, they send a monthly magazine like the Magnificat, only it, uh, it has the scriptures broken down from Genesis through Revelation uh, in the calendar year. And so I started that practice about age 12. I wasn't perfectly consistent with it, but I, I estimate that by the time I was 18, I had read through the Bible about three times from this program. Uh, which was implanting in me a love of scripture, which came to fruition later. Um, when, I was, uh, when we returned to Hawaii when I was in high school, my youth pastor discipled me along with two other high school uh, men, uh, which planted in my heart a great appreciation for what we in the Catholic tradition called spiritual direction. 
and ever after that, I always sought to have a discipler, or what, we would now, what I would now call a spiritual director, uh, in, my, in my spiritual journey. Um, <clears throat> when, I, uh, when I reached the age to go to college, I did what all three of my brothers had done, and uh, uh, headed off to the pre-seminary program at one of our denominational colleges. I come from a family of Dutch Calvinist preachers. Sometimes people ask me, well, what's Dutch Calvinism like? It's like Presbyterianism, only everybody's Dutch. (laughs) So, wooden shoes, windmill cookies, (laughs) Wilhelmina peppermints, and and then it's Presbyterianism, kind of. Okay, but... it's Calvinism, you know, predestination, uh, anti-Catholicism, Pope is the Antichrist, that, that kind of thing, um, in a nutshell. Uh, and my, my uncle is a seminary professor, well-known se- seminary professor at a Presbyterian seminary. My other uncle was a uh, pastor for a Dutch Reformed church. That in, the Dutch Calvinists call their churches Reformed. English Calvinists call their churches Presbyterian. It's a difference of terminology, so I was from what we called the Reformed Church. Um, one of them. There's many, many Reformed churches, many different denominations. So my, my, uh, my two uncles, my dad, uh, all three of my brothers went to prepare for the ministry. Uh, only one made it all the way through, but I went and, and uh, I eventually made it all the way through myself. Um, so that's, that's my, my childhood in a nutshell. I just want to take a moment and, and talk about some... Um, experiences of Catholicism growing up. Uh, being a military family and my dad being a chaplain, we got to know uh, chaplain priests very well. And for the most part, they were excellent men who modeled devotion to Jesus Christ. The highest respect for priests who, are, who serve the military chaplaincy. One of my dad's best friends, in fact, was a man by the name of John O'Connor. John O'Connor was a, an extraordinary chaplain, a Catholic priest, who rose to be chief of the U.S. Navy chaplains, uh, the highest-ranking Navy chaplain for both the Navy and the Marine Corps, since the Navy supplies the Marine Corps. Marines are actually part of the Navy. They won't admit that. <laughs> so that's why they got an anchor on their crest. So, anyway, it's like the Navy's private army. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> when John O'Connor retired from, the, from the, uh, uh, the U.S. Navy, he gave my dad all his old uniforms because they were the same size and, and build. Um, and my dad had been one of his staff officers at the Pentagon during the last two years of his, um, of his service as chief of chaplains. Those uniforms, by the way, are still in my mother's house in uh, Byron Center, Michigan, by the way, saving them until they become relics and just sell them. <laughs> Got a profit from this Catholic stick somehow, you know. And then, as many of you know, he went on to become Bishop of Scranton and then Archbishop and then Cardinal of New York. 
And when he was installed as uh, Archbishop of New York, he invited my dad and my family to the service for the religious prior to his installation. I remember that very well because I was about seven or eight at the time. And uh, we went to St. Patrick's Cathedral in, in Manhattan uh, for this service. My dad was in his dress navy blues, which is an awesome sight to behold. My mother was in um, a very elegant black evening gown. And we go into this evening mass, and here are the religious of New York, all black. Okay? Priests, nuns. Okay? And I had a bright green corduroy sport coat. And I was the only one under 20, maybe under 30, in the whole place. And they put us right in the middle. So look out on this sea of black and then this throbbing green. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on, but it was very impressive. The, the reason I recount that is, you know, the witness, the witness of these faithful priests like John O'Connor uh, softened me to the Catholic Church. I never had the animus against Catholicism that some of my Calvinist friends did because I knew they were godly men in uh, the priesthood. Further, my mom had some affection for the Catholic Church. We were in Hawaii in 1973 when Roe v. Wade came out. And my mother right away got involved in the pro-life movement. Now, at that time, that w it was unusual for Protestants to be involved at, in the early years. Not so much the case anymore, uh, praise, praise be to God. But um, in 1973, uh, the pro-life movement, especially in, in Hawaii, was a Catholic affair. And when my mom started going around doing pro-life activism, it got back to the Bishop of Honolulu, that there's this Protestant lady going around also speaking about pro-life. And the, 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 the Bishop of Honolulu was curious, and he, let's get a hold of this woman and, and see if we can work together. So he called my mom and set up appointments, and she would go down to the, um, to the chancery of the, uh, of the Diocese of Honolulu, to meet with the bishop to serve as a liaison and a, a coordinator between Protestant and Catholic efforts at pro-life. And since I was the only small child at home and not in school, she would take me along. So she'd go in and meet with the bishop, and she tells me about letting me play as a toddler out in Mary's Garden, which was this little garden outside of the bishop's offices. Well, from that experience, my mom developed a great respect for uh, the Catholic Church and for the Catholic Church position on, on openness to life and the sanctity of human life. And again, that's another step in that thread that I was mentioning earlier. Looking back at my childhood, I also had a lot of friends who were Catholic. In fact, my three best friends in elementary school, junior high, and high school, they were all Catholics, and I only realized that in hindsight. Uh, some of them were excellent examples of the faith. My best friend in high school never swore. I think he was the only male at uh, Kalaheo High School in uh, Kailua, Hawaii, who did not cuss, including myself, I'm ashamed to say. Um, never ate meat on Fridays. Very kind, very charitable to everyone. Believed in transubstantiation. Eagle Scout. Okay? A model student. But you know what? His intellectual formation was abysmal. 
he used to tell me things like, like that the Catholic Church believed there needed to be a balance of good and evil in the world. And that if there was too much good or too much evil, things got out of balance. And I didn't know too much about Catholicism, but I knew that was not what the Catholic Church taught. Like, no, look, dude, I don't know where you're getting that, but that is not, you know, I, I'm sure that's not what the Pope teaches. And I'm the Calvinist, right? And then he tells me things like, oh, Catholics believe you can't be any more holy than your parents were. Dude, I, no, I don't know where you're getting this stuff, okay? But if you do the math, that means that everything's going to degenerate. <laughs> you, can't, you can't get any better, you know? That, that can't work. That cannot be what they actually teach. Yeah. Where are you getting all this stuff? Well, we have CCD every week. This is the 80s. So he was a, he was a great kid. Um, but, uh, but no intellectual formation, and that led to some sad results. Uh, and I'll mention that a little later on. When I graduated from high school, I went off to our denominational college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, and entered the pre-seminary program there. I studied uh, Latin and Greek for four years, um, which will either get you into seminary or will prepare you for a career in a food service. <laughs> As I found out <laughs> every time I tried to get a part-time job. And uh, in at our denominational college, I had very little exposure to Catholicism and didn't think about Catholicism for a good four years, except towards the end where I had, I had met my, my wife, my future wife, and we began to get serious and we'd gotten engaged. And, um, you know, when you get engaged, you start thinking about, well, we're going to get married and what about children? And we need to be in agreement on, on how many children we want and how we're going to go about things, right? So I, I having a you know, anybody heard of Bill Gothard, okay, Institute for Basic Youth Conflicts? I had a very high view of parental authority. Okay, I, I, really, I really respected my parents. Even if their motives weren't pure, I thought that, you know, God can speak to me through my parents, right? So I went to my mom, and um, I said, you know, what do you think about birth control and uh, what Don and I should do after we get married? And my mom said... I'm not, she says to me, I'm not comfortable with anything that Protestants teach on this stuff. Why don't you go and see if you can get, take some Catholic marriage preparation courses? <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> I, yeah, I, was I, I was comfortable with Catholics personally. I thought they were a little bit, you know, like the elevator didn't go to the top floor. But, <laughs> but, but they were nice people. You know, I didn't have a you know, hanging around with them, and maybe they were right on one thing, you know, so. So I go down to the, to the Catholic Information Center in downtown uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I'm looking around, and sure enough, here are these classes in natural family planning, you know, by, by an organization called CCL. I go, okay, cool. So uh, I pull out the flyer, and they've got courses scheduled, you know, it's uh, Our Lady of the Immaculate Assumption or whatever parish and somewhere 
north of the city. I didn't understand what that was all about. Um, okay, whatever. So we'll, we'll just sign up and go. So we, we go to this course up at the, up at the church, a little north of the city. And uh, it's the, f- the first day, and everybody's going around introducing themselves. You know, hi, we're Francis and Faustina from St. Joseph Parish. We're John Paul and Margaret Mary from uh, <laughs> Our Lady of Lords. It gets to us. And we're, we're John and Dawn Bergsma from Covenant CRC, Christian Ford Church. Like, <laughs> There's Protestants among us. What are they doing here? They were a little uncomfortable, like, okay, we're just going to go along with the program, you know. They want to be here, fine. Okay. Well, it was, it was a good, it was an excellent program, and we, we became Protestant members of the Couple to Couple League, which we are to this day. It's one of my favorite apostolates to support. And, um, and uh, we practiced uh, openness to life. I mean, many people think that openness to life is, is a Catholic thing, but prior to 1930, it was a Christian thing. Then 1930, the Episcopalians were the first to capitulate, as they typically are. Um, <laughs> sorry, truth, though, you know. Okay. <clears throat> and, then, and then the rest of Protestantism follows, or followed. And in our own denomination, without any, any synodical decision, without any official decision by the leaders of the church, there was just a cultural shift in the 70s, and all of a sudden, everyone's practicing contraception. Whereas prior to that, in Dutch Calvinist homes, you had lots of kids. Because kids were a blessing. You wanted the full quiver. So without any careful thought, it was just, boom, changing culture. And my mom wasn't right with that. Uh, so, I mean, it's a, it is a traditional Dutch Calvinist thing to be open to life. That's my point. But, uh, but my denomination... Uh, didn't hold out on that. Well, um, our experience with the Couple of Couple League was, was good, but uh, we certainly were not thinking about being Catholic at the time, although one time we got their, their magazine, um, Family Foundations, and my, my wife read an article about praying the rosary as a housewife, and she got done with it, put it down, and said, gosh, you know, I wish we Protestants had something like the rosary to pray. I still remember that. But we didn't think anything about it. Went right along. All right. Well, because we were open to life, in um, two years after getting married, um, life was coming. Okay. Hello, you're grown up now. <laughs> and um, and I was in seminary, and my wife obviously needed to couldn't work full time and bear the child and, and stay at home, and so I needed I needed to get work. So I. Um, I accepted the, the acting pastorate of a, um, an urban mission church of about 75 people, uh, mostly African-American, in, in uh, downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. I served as the acting pastor there for four to five years uh, while I was going to seminary at the same time. And uh, that whole experience was wonderful in terms of uh, leading me deeper into the reality of the Christian faith. I was doing catechesis, I was doing evangelism, I was driving the church bus, sometimes I was serving in the nursery, uh, I was preaching a couple times uh, on a Sunday, running gospel fests, directing our, our gospel choir, if you can see me doing that. 
Silver and gold, silver and gold. Yeah. Kirk Franklin. Yeah, it was good stuff. So I did that for about four years. And uh, near the end of it, I was finishing up my seminary degree, and I, I had a choice. I, I could go and take a large church that could support my family long term within our denomination, or I could do something else. And at that time, I was having a, a, a bunch of trouble um, staying within my denomination. Uh, there, there are problems that were occurring to me. Let me give you a, a couple of examples. We were one Dutch Reformed church at one corner. Two corners down in the same neighborhood, there was a different denomination, but also from the same tradition. Another two blocks down, and there was a, a Baptist storefront church. A block up the hill, there was a Pentecostal church. Farther up the hill was a very almost secretive Baptist group that nobody knew what they believed. They didn't talk to anybody. And this is all within a neighborhood of maybe a couple thousand people, 2,000, 3,000 people, what we called the Coit, the Coit neighborhood in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And when somebody from our church would do something scandalous, like start living with a person outside of marriage and it became publicly known, my pastor and co myself and my co-pastor would go to that person and say, you can't do this. Okay? If you keep this up, we're going to exclude you from communion. And what do you think the person did? Two blocks down. Okay? And I saw how this, all this diversity... Uh, completely foiled church discipline. But if you look in St. Paul, when, he, when St. Paul talks about how you run the church, he talks about church discipline, that you exclude somebody from the Eucharist, unless, I, we didn't call it the Eucharist, but you, what we call the Lord's Supper, right? But you exclude them from the table of the Lord uh, if they're living in open sin. That is, that's St. That's Paul. That's the Bible. But I began to realize that the diversity of denominations made it impossible to do what the Bible said. So I went to my pastoral mentor, and I said, this is the situation. Look at, we got all these different churches all in the same neighborhood, and it's, it's uh, defeating our witness, and it's undermining the morality of the church. Why is all this? And he said, well, you know, there's these sociological reasons that give rise to the Baptist movement, and the Reform movement, and he starts charting out all these history stuff. Like, whoa, 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 wait up, wait up. I took church history in seminary. Okay. I know historically why this is. I'm saying theologically, what do we make of this? Does Jesus want all this diversity? That's what I, was t I asked him. And my pastoral mentor said, well, I guess in a sense we have to say Jesus intended this. And I said, hold on. Okay. Jesus could intend perhaps different worship styles but different positions on sexual ethics, different positions on whether, whether divorce is okay or not, you know, that cannot be the intention of Jesus to have disunity on fundamental moral questions. So I didn't express that all to my pastoral mentor, but in the back of my mind, I'm like, that is an unsatisfying answer. I know that Jesus did not intend this. Okay, another problem. Um, 
What reason did our denomination have to exist? That began to bother me. We weren't distinctive enough from other groups that we could belong to, so, like, why are we continuing to exist and be kind of a rent in the seamless garment of Christ? Don't we all want unity? Shouldn't we just merge with somebody else? So I went to one of my trusted, most trusted professors and said, you know, why do we have a right to exist as a separate group? And he said, well, we have these emphasis on church education. Very important. I thought, well, okay, Lutherans have schools, Baptists have schools, even Catholics have schools. Why is that unique enough that we need to have a separate whole denomination just because of our emphasis on Christian schools? So I didn't say that, but in the back of my mind, that's what I'm thinking. So, at the end of uh, my, my tenure as pastor, when I was finishing up my seminary degrees and I had to decide to move on because the small church I was pastoring couldn't, couldn't uh, support me long term, uh, I was in a, a great quandary about what to do, whether to find some theological reason to stay within the group that I was or whether to seek out a different group that was a better expression of Christianity. And um, it caused a lot of distress in my life. And I didn't know which way to turn. And so I did what a lot of people do, what a lot of people who are confused and troubled and directionless do, and I applied to graduate school. <laughs> and I thought that graduate school would, would give me some time to think through all these theological issues. So I applied to 14 different uh, graduate schools. Um, I got accepted by three, and one of them gave me a fellowship offer, and that was the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Our Lady's University. Um, it's, a, it's a funny and comical story how I even found out about Notre Dame. Um, I was uh, leading a mission trip of 14 African-American youth from our church in uh, downtown Grand Rapids to Chicago. And I was coming back, and we were all exhausted from a weekend of, of doing church work. And uh, I was drowsing at the wheel and missed the, the turnoff to go up around the lake, up north into Michigan. And so I kept going straight on 8090. Some of you know how this works. So when I, when I came to and realized what was going on, there were, we were coming up on this exit. It was exit 77. I'm like, I better get off now and figure out where we are. So I pull off of Highway 8090 and exit 77. Some of you know what this exit is. And you come off, and that's Notre Dame there, okay? That's, you know, dome in the face, okay? You get off, and if you keep going, you can't go straight when you get off. If you do go straight, you're on the campus, like, boom. I'm like, wow, I never knew Notre Dame was here. I knew Notre Dame was associated with football, but I had no idea geographically where it was in the U.S. Okay. It could have been in California for all I knew. And I pull off this exit like, oh, this is only two hours from home. They're a big Catholic university. They, they must study Bible there. You know? Maybe they've got a doctoral program, you know. So I, I go home, I get on the, on the internet, and sure enough, they've got a doctoral program. They, they even have somebody from my own denomination teaching there in Old Testament, which is what I wanted to, teach, wanted to study. Okay. So I got accepted at Notre Dame. We go down to Notre Dame, and uh, because we were open to life, 
uh, we had um, three children at the time and a fourth on the way. Um, and we're going into graduate school. So we were looking for the cheapest possible housing. Again, look at how one, one decision to be open to life leads to another. Okay? We're looking for the cheapest possible housing. Well, that's the subsidized on-campus housing, what they call the University Village. And who do you think are all the, all the other people who are looking for the cheapest possible subsidized housing? Okay. All your orthodox, practicing Catholic graduate students okay, who are having kids or are in school. Okay. So we move into this community and we're surrounded by people who are living openness to life. They're very intelligent because they're in grad school and they know their, their Catholic faith really well. You know? So they start evangelizing us. Like, oh, hey, what, what, what's your background? Oh, Nate, tell us about your background. Well, you want to hear about Catholicism? I'll tell you. So I meet this one guy named Mike Dauphining at Notre Dame. Uh, he's also, I quickly find out, a member of the Couple to Couple League, like uh, Don and I were. And uh, we hit it off right away. And immediately I found it in him a person that had three qualities I never thought I'd find in the same individual. He was very intelligent. He was full of the spirit, and he was Catholic. <laughs> and I didn't understand how you could be all three at once. You could be very intelligent and Catholic, but you're just in the church because your parents were. You, know, you could be full of the Holy Spirit and Catholic, but you, know, you just don't know very much, and you don't, know that, you don't realize you're in the Whore of Babylon and stuff like that. Or you can be smart, and you can be full of the Holy Spirit, but then you would get out of the Catholic Church. So how you could do all three things, you know, so this, he was like the burning bush to me. I was like, I got to step aside, <laughs> see how this is not consumed, you know. <laughs> so I made, a, I made a rash vow. You know, Jesus says, don't make vows, okay? I test you, don't make vows. I made a vow. I'm going to convert him, or he's going to convert me. This is why Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. <laughs> Learn from my errors. <laughs> so we begin to have, have lunch together on a regular basis and talk about theological issues. You know, we go to the, what's called the huddle at Notre Dame. Everything is football. At Notre Dame. We had first down Moses. You know, we had touchdown Jesus on the library. And then the, the eating court was the huddle. And we would go there and we'd have the grad student lunch was this two Whopper Juniors for two bucks, like the, the most, most protein per cent, okay, we were counting our cents, you know. Now the undergrads, all their parents were like Fortune 500 executives, you know, so they get the triple Whopper with cheese, supersize it and put it on my dad's bill, you know. And me and Mike are living on fellowships with four and five children, and we're like, Chew, chew your Whopper Junior slowly. <laughs> it's kept people in prison alive for months. <laughs> to each bean. So we're getting together for the grad student lunch. <laughs> and... Um, 
And I started on all my biblical attacks against the Catholic Church. The primary, one of the primary ones was Mary, Queen of Heaven, which I saw everywhere on campus. All this Mary, Queen of like, Where do you get this Mary, Queen of Heaven stuff out of the Bible? This is, this is, and it's near blasphemous. And Mike shoots back, well, have you ever looked at Revelation 12? I said, Revelation who? He said, Revelation 12. Well, of course I read Revelation 12. I've read the Bible through at least three times. Well, take a closer look at it. So we get out our Bibles, and we're looking through Revelation 12. And he says, look, there's this woman clothed with the heavenly bodies, and she's got a crown of 12 stars in her head. What does that make her? You know, what kind of women wear crowns? Queens. <laughs> well, then she gives birth to a male child who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Who's that? Well, I knew that. It was in Old Testament, right? That's from Psalm 2. Okay, that's the Davidic Messiah. That's Jesus. Okay? So we got this queen who gives birth to Jesus. <laughs> Do you know anybody in the Bible who's like was gave birth to a like a Messiah? <laughs> I'm like, okay, cut the sarcasm, right? You know? <laughs> Score one for Catholics here. Um, Here's this Catholic giving me this very, this very reasonable explanation of Revelation. And folks, I had grown up in Baptist churches where I'd hear the weirdest stuff coming out of Revelation, you know. And here's the first second coming, and then the second second coming, and in between there's chaos, and then the temple is rebuilt, and then we have a chart here where the Jews come back from all the lands, and then at this point Russia invades everybody. And that was all supposed to be strict exegesis, okay? That was strict Protestant exegesis. I never bought all these, I mean, they had books. You just, you know, you're just like, oh, and on his fourth second coming, you know. This is all exegesis. And, and, and here, by contrast, this Catholic is giving me this very sound, very sensible exegesis to me. I mean, you follow the, that logic, right? It's pretty clear logic out of Revelation for Mary, Queen of Heaven. I'm like, oh, that really impressed me. Okay, that really impressed me. So I but I continued with my scriptural objections until finally um, uh, Mike pointed out, you know what, we, we can't solve this question based on scripture alone. And I agreed with him. I said, you know, you're right. Uh, I, had, I, was I had learned enough at seminary to realize that not even Protestants operate by sola scriptura. So Mike said, why don't we start reading the church fathers, and maybe, especially the early fathers, since they knew some of the apostles, the early fathers can guide us in our interpretation of scripture. And I said, that sounds very reasonable to me. So we go to a, we go to a bookstore, and we're, we're, um, we're picking books off, and I see this book by this guy named Stephen Ray. <laughs> and I, I look and... The book intrigues me because I look in the back and he claims to have all these quotes from the early church fathers that support the church's teaching on Eucharist and baptism. Like, okay, I'm curious. So I buy the book, I go home, and I'm sitting and reading it. And I'm reading all these fathers and I'm reading the scriptures on the Eucharist and I get, I get to this guy, Ignatius of Antioch. I get to, and there's a quote in Ray's book from Ignatius of Antioch, chapter 7. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, uh, his letter to the Smyrnians, because there's several letters by Ignatius Antioch. It's a letter to the Smyrnians, chapter 7. And I'm, I'm reading along there in this quote, 
And uh, Ignatius, you know, he's living in 106 AD. He's heading to martyrdom. And, uh, and he says, he's warning this church in Smyrna, which is a modern-day Turkey, and he says, beware the heretics. Now, I'm par- paraphrasing a little bit, okay? But he says, beware the heretics and see what notions that they have that are contrary to the mind of God. And then he gives three qualities of these heretics. They have no love for the poor. They deny that the Eucharist is the self-same body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was raised for our salvation, and they are condemned in their disputatiousness. And I looked at that, I said, hmm, don't love the poor, now that the Eucharist is really Jesus' body, and they're always fighting with each other. Sounds like Dutch Calvinism to me. <laughs> and I realized that Ignatius was warning the true Christians about people like me. <laughs> I was on the wrong side. And it felt to me like there's Ignatius the Antioch 2,000 years ago, and he's way down there, and he said, John, John. I'm like, what, what? And then I see this hand, like Plastic Man, you know, reaching up through the depths of time. His hand is coming towards me, and when he gets me, like, quack, 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 <laughs> You're the problem. And I thought, maybe Ray is misquoting Ignatius of Antioch. So I, got, go got, I went and got the English, and I read it in context, and I got the Greek, and I read the Greek. The Greek was even more dramatic. Because in the Greek it says, they deny that the Eucharist is the self-same body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which, and then the, the relative pronoun is neuter. It refers to the body, not to Jesus. Not simply that the Eucharist is Jesus, which you could kind of fudge, but the Eucharist is Jesus' body, like impersonal, like his flesh, like his corpse, you know, that's not quite it, but his body, which was raised for our salvation. And I looked at that and I said, you can do whatever gymnastics you want, but a Calvinist would never say that. Never say that. And then Ignatius the Antioch, you know, he's writing in 106. John the Apostle died in 96. It was only a decade. He had to know John the Apostle who lived in the same area. Not enough time elapsed for Ignatius to have gotten confused He couldn't have had ulterior motives because he was heading to martyrdom. He was giving everything up. In fact, he says, don't persuade the government to let me loose. Let me be finest wheat ground in the teeth of the lions, he says later in his letter to the Romans, which was a Eucharistic image, which went right over my head because I hadn't been introduced to the sacred mysteries yet. So Ignatius, so I go back into the Gospel of John, and I start reading in John 6, unless you eat my blood and I eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up at the last day. I said, what did I ever think that this meant? What did I ever think that this meant? I've been through the Gospel of John so many times. It's my favorite Gospel. Well, Ignatius of Antioch was showing me what it meant. And I began to dawn on me. The real presence in the Eucharist is the true teaching of the early church. If the Euc- Thank you. If the Eucharist is really Jesus, that's pretty big. If the Eucharist is really Jesus, it's worth 
having the Eucharist even if some other things don't make sense. So unlike Dr. Scott Hahn, who I very much respect, but had to have every T crossed and every I dotted before he would become Catholic, I was much more intuitive. I was like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> the Eucharist is enough. I'm not proud of that. I'm not proud of that. I, I respect Dr. Hahn because he got everything figured out, whereas I became a Catholic, I still didn't have everything figured out yet. But the Eucharist by itself was we, worth putting up with things that I didn't know how to explain. In time, I learned how to explain everything, and it all started to make sense. But I'm looking at this thing that you got Catholics over here who teach what the Eucharist is. Every other group doesn't have that right. That's my choice. Okay? So 18 months later, I found myself in the co-cathedral at South Bend having my forehead marked with the sign of the cross and Bishop Jenke, now of Peoria, Illinois, saying, Francis, welcome into the church, my patron saint, Francis de Sales. Um, I have to wrap up. One brief note on my family. Um, my family was not happy, neither was my wife's. I called my closest brother, who had invited us to stay at his home for Christmas, and we had been planning to become Catholic, and I told him, Tim, we can, we can come to your house, but we're going to go to Mass on Sunday because we're intending to become Catholic. And he said, what? And I said, we're becoming Catholic. He said, wait a minute, that's the silliest thing I've ever heard. He said, all right, so we go to his house, and when it comes time to go to Mass, um, the, the manure hits the ventilator. Okay. <laughs> and he starts to, as they say, go ballistic on me. And at one point in the conversation, he says, this is crazy. The Reformation was 400 years ago. You're giving up on 400 years of tradition to go back to Rome. <laughs> says, no lie. That's exactly what he said. But one, good, one great thing about Tim was that he wanted to debate. And I said, are you willing to read a book? He said, I'll read whatever you got. He said. So I shipped him a, a, a box full of books. <laughs> about three months later, I get an email. It says, I've read them. You got any more? my only sibling, who read the stuff that I sent him. One year later, I'm at the reception line at the Easter vigil as my brother and his wife are coming through, still in their white robes. And I shake my brother's hand and say, welcome to the Catholic Church. Keep in mind, you're giving up on 400 years of tradition. <laughs> Thank you an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.